0: This sermon, Getting Reacquainted with the King of Glory, Part 1, was preached by Derek Overstreet on June 5th, 2022 at Sovereign Grace Church. Would you open up your Bibles to Acts 12? If you're visiting with us, we, are, we have been preaching through the book of Acts. We're going to see it to the end. And uh, we are about to turn the corner in Acts As uh, in chapter 13, the focus shifts really from Peter to Paul and his missionary journeys as he begins to plant churches. But chapter 12, in all of that, is a critical chapter. And as you turn to Acts 12, listen to this summary of uh, Acts 12 by Kent Hughes. He says, Acts 1 through 11. Portrays the river of God's grace growing wider and wider in fulfillment of Acts 1.8. You remember that promise? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's the promise the Savior gave to the disciples and by extension of the gospel coming to us. It is our promise as well. Ken Hughes goes on to say, the river of grace threatened to jump its banks when Philip preached to the Samaritans, and it made noticeable ripples when he shared Christ with the Ethiopian eunuch. It dramatically overflowed with the conversion of Cornelius and his household. A worldwide flood of grace began when the good news was preached in Antioch. You looked at that last week. And from the end of Acts 12 on, attention will be turned to the Gentile world. He goes on to say, chapter 12, our chapter this morning, is set in a context of mounting persecution and it opens with the apparent inability of God's people to do anything to deliver themselves, but then depicts an amazing display of strength among seemingly helpless Christians and reveals that source of strength. The interventions recorded here were meant to acquaint or perhaps reacquaint the church with its authority and power. This account was a reassuring for the surrendered, beleaguered church, not then, And it remains so for us today. Would you stand? And let's read Acts 12. I've broken it up into two parts, and so this morning we're gonna limit ourselves to the first 17 verses. Luke continues to tell the history of the early church. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God. By the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hands of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, In her joy, she did not open the gate but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent... He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. To be seated, let's pray. Lord, our prayer is the song that we've already sung. Cause your word to grow deep down into our hearts. Bless us, O Lord. Be merciful to us this morning. Remove right now all distractions so that we might see your glory, so that we might know and be more convinced of the hope that we have in Jesus today, so that the trials and the sufferings and the persecutions and the injustices, the disappointments and the discouragements that no doubt each person brought in here this morning, that they Though they might not disappear, that they would become miniature, because this text magnifies you. Help us, work in us, change us, for our good and your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. I love Kent Hughes' purpose statement for our text, reacquaint the church with its power and authority. You know, that whole idea implies that we forget, <laughs> or that we move away from something. If we need to be reacquainted, it means that at one time we were acquainted with, but life happens, and we can forget, or we can move away from that which, at one time we were very, we were very acquainted with. Recently, this was revealed in my own life. Something happened in my world that rocked my world pretty good. And as I walked through it, I realized that I had become unacquainted with the goodness and the sovereignty and the mercy and the perfect will of God in my life. The situation re- revealed that I needed to be reacquainted with the character of God and the promises of God that don't just apply to people who seem like super-Christians in the Bible, but apply to me, anything but a super-Christian. Part of this revealing was as I talked to my wife about my response to the situation. Part of this revealing was as I sat down with my friends and and pastors, Tom and Tim, and shared with them what had happened and how I was responding, by his mercy, he revealed that I needed to get reacquainted with who he is and how he is able and how sufficient he truly is. And here's what I desperately needed to be reacquainted with. And it's really the point of the entire sermon this morning. God is always in control. And it's not just that he's always in control. He is always in control, always for our good. And it's not that just he's always in control, always for our good, but he is always in control, always for, his, for our good And ultimately, always for his glory, for the sake of the gospel mission going forth. So wherever you are this morning, present trial, seemingly senseless suffering, or future injustice, whether this is addressing something in your life right now, or it will prepare us for something in the future, personally or collectively as a church, remember this this morning. God is always in control always for your good. Now, getting reacquainted with this begins with acquainting ourselves with what is a very dire situation, if you didn't figure it out by reading it, a dire situation that the church suddenly finds itself in. Remember, things are going great. Antioch on fire. It's the new Jerusalem. The Lord, the the God is pouring out his grace. And then in Luke 1, Luke, or in, I'm sorry, in, in verse one, Luke introduces us to Herod. Now, Herod, by the way, Herod's not a name, personal name. Herod's a title. It's a royal title. And this particular Herod was Herod, the, Herod Agrippa I. And his family history is well known in Scripture. Do you remember Herod the Great, the one who committed genocide Against uh, the baby boys in the region of Bethlehem, that was this Herod's grandfather. he's the one who set out to kill Jesus. Remember that? That was his grandfather. Herod the Agrippa, Herod Agrippa I, he was the nephew of Herod Antipas, who is the one, if you, the one, if you remember, who uh, beheaded John the Baptist, and later would really oversee the trial of Jesus, mocking him incessantly and then sending him back to Pilate to his fate. And so Luke says in verse 1, about that time, that is the time of the Antioch mission in chapter 11, Herod, this Herod, follows in his family footsteps. He is a chip off the old block, terrorizing God's people. But this time he's persecuting the church, including beheading an apostle. This is the first apostle who is murdered for his faith. Notice verse 2. It says, he, that is Herod, killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. With the sword simply means he beheaded him. Herod beheaded the apostle James. Now, if you're wondering, who is this James? He's not to be confused with Jesus' half-brother James who also wrote the book of James. This was uh, James, as the text says, this is John's brother. He was known as one of the sons of thunder. And this James was important to the mission of the early church. He was a big player when Jesus was living on this earth. James, along with his brother John and Peter, they were in the inner, inner circle of Jesus. In other words, James was a big fish. James was a big fish. You know, when you turn on the news and you you hear that that we droned uh, a, a terrorist in the Middle East, They normally make a pretty big deal out of it by talking about how high up the ranks they were. This was a strategic kill, they say. This individual was number two in this terrorist group. You know the adage, kill the leader, kill the movement, right? James was a strategic kill for the Jews, This was a big deal. Not just because somebody was beheaded for their faith, but the one who was beheaded was a big fish. But you'll notice in verse 3 and 4 that Herod had an even bigger fish. Look at verse 3. And when he saw that it pleased, that is, beheading James, the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. (laughs) kind of like the politician that follows the polls. Oh, that that word works, huh? Well, let's keep doing it. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, that is Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Now listen, the, the detail here can seem minimal, but the detail about holding Peter during the days of the unleavened bread is important because it really, it really gives us a clue into what Peter's fate is going to be. See, so see, in Jewish tradition, uh, Jewish tradition prohibited taking a life during the Passover, and, and the days of the unleavened bread were simply the seven days that followed the day of Passover. It was an extension of that holiday, if you will. And the Jews had strict tradition, take no life during the Passover, and that included the days of the unleavened bread. That's important to note, because Herod historically was known as being a people pleaser to the core. One historian wrote, when in Rome, he was a cosmopolitan Roman. When in Jerusalem, he acted the part of an observant Jew. And so when we we see Luke in verse 3, he says Herod intends to kill Peter because he saw how killing James pleased the Jews. Well, then you know what we know? We know that Peter is a walking dead man right now. He's just waiting out the seven days. And then Herod's plan is to take him before the people and chop his head off just like he did to James. And no doubt, this is why Herod had him in complete Lockdown. You, you would think Peter was public enemy number one with the lockdown that, that he was in. Did you notice in verse four, Luke says, Herod put four squads of four soldiers. The point there was that every three hours you get a new group of soldiers through the night watch so that everybody was fresh, everybody was able to make sure there wasn't a jailbreak. No, no doubt Herod was aware This guy knows how to break out of prison. (laughs) We've already seen it twice in the story of Acts. Notice verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. What's the point of those details? The point of those details is to see that Peter had a hopeless situation. Herod had him on lockdown. Here's the situation. He's going to get the same treatment that James received. So let's just pause for a moment. That's the scene. James is dead. Just imagine you're part of the church. James is dead. Peter is locked down on death row. What a tremendous blow! personally. These people knew Peter and James. What a tremendous blow personally and corporately. What are we going to do? These are, these are two of the top guys. They're leading us. The mission has been, imagine how senseless they wondered about this. But we've been cruising in Antioch. This doesn't make sense. I mean, one can only imagine the anxiety and the fear, the hopelessness and the sense of senselessness that must have come over the believers. Have you ever been there? I mean, not here. (laughs) But have you ever found yourself in that moment? I I can remember a number of years ago, One night I couldn't sleep, and it was in a season where I don't think I slept at all for months. I got out of bed 2 o'clock in the morning. I made my way out to the backyard. Our kids had a trampoline. I I climbed up on that trampoline, and I, I just laid on it and stared up at the bright stars in the sky. And I just began to weep. And as I wept, I began to cry out to the Lord. I'm sure I woke up a few neighbors. I'm pretty sure I heard a few dogs start barking. But I remember laying there crying out, Lord, as I considered the situation, Lord, I have no wisdom. I don't know what to do. What's going to happen? Where do we go from here? You been there? Are you there now? The early believers were there. This was a trampling moment, no doubt. And in a situation where most people would panic in powerlessness, Luke, reacquaints us with the true reality by showing us how the power of God gave strength to his people. The way he tells us this story, it, it reveals God's power at work in his people that gave them strength for the moment in two ways. First, the people's prayer. Notice verse five. In the midst of all these details of this horrific situation. Peter breaks into those details in verse 5. He says, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Listen, Luke Luke does something rare in this verse. He uses something uh, that is known in the Greek language as the men day construction. It's not common. It's rare. But In this passage, in verse 5, verse 5, is he's utilized the men-day construction. And unless you are looking at the original, you wouldn't know it. Because typically in the English, it's not translated. Because it tends to be awkward. It tends to be a bit bulky. But if you you take that men-day construction, a a more literal translation of verse 5 would be this. Therefore, on the one hand, that's the men... Peter was being kept in prison. While on the other hand, that's the day, earnest prayer for him was being made by the church. That is a more literal reading of verse 5. And do you notice what the men day construction does? It shows us this clear contrast that Peter breaks into the details. He's not done with the details of this horrific situation. What he wants us to know is there's two things happening here before I go any further in the story. Yes, while, the, while on the one hand, this does not look good for Peter and the church. But here's what you need to know as you keep reading. On the other hand, there is a group of people earnestly praying. That word in the Greek for earnest, Luke Luke only uses one other time between the book of Acts and the gospel. You know what it is? It's to describe how Jesus was praying in the garden of Gethsemane. These people were on their knees pleading for the power of God to work in their dark and desperate situation. On the one hand, Herod is carrying out his seemingly unstoppable, wicked assault on the church, while on the other hand, God's people are praying their hearts out to God for his power. I love what John Stott says. He says... What could the little community of Jesus in its powerlessness do against the armed might of Rome? Here then were two communities, the world and the church, arrayed against one another, each yielding a weapon. The church turned to prayer, which is the only power the powerless possess. Is that your view of prayer? The power of the powerless. Listen, we live, you know this, we live in a society that increasingly views prayer as a sign of impotence, weakness, a crutch. Something happens in the news, and it's a tragedy what we are seeing more and more with these shootings, but but more and more, you read those headlines, enough with your prayers, act. We don't need your prayers. Prayers do nothing. Quit praying and start doing. And yet when we look into the word of God, we see that prayer is the power of God's people. To tap into the power of their God who is infinitely greater than any power in this. world. listen, this morning, do you need to reacquaint yourself with prayer? Do you need to reacquaint yourself with that which puts you into communion with the God of the universe, who by the time we get to the end of chapter 12 next week, we will see kings are nothing for God. The second thing that we, the second uh, thing that we see here is, not only were the people praying. But did you notice Peter, what Peter was doing? Look at look at the beginning of verse 6 again. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping. I love that. Paul sings hymns in prison. Peter, I'm, I'm getting a good night's sleep. Peter was sleeping. Imagine that for a moment. I mean, Luke's details just fill the, the, the sanctified imagination, don't they? Peter is chained, first of all. That can't be comfortable. Listen, I've been in handcuffs a few times. I've never been in chains. I'm sure that is more uncomfortable than handcuffs. He's not just chained. He's Chained to him are two burly soldiers, Now, for more than one reason, that couldn't have been comfortable. He's in a dingy prison cell, concrete all around. Perhaps every time he closes his eyes, he thinks about his friend, James, whom he may have watched be beheaded. And Peter knows that his dear friend's fate is soon to be his own. The last thing one would think Peter could do was sleep. And I submit to you, he was sound asleep. Because in verse 7, the angel had to hit him and yell at him to wake him up. I think he was like snoring sleep. Not even the light of the angel woke him up. There's a picture here, and it's this. In his darkest hour, Peter is at complete peace with the Lord. Do you see that? It doesn't make sense. That can be the only answer. He knows what's going on, he knows his life is in danger. He understands the dire nature of the situation, yet, like his brothers and sisters in the church, he didn't panic. They didn't panic, they prayed. He didn't panic, he rested. He rested in the providence and sovereign power of God. You know, perhaps Peter in this moment. You know, remember that transforming moment not too long ago in the boat. Remember? With Jesus. As the storm raged all around them and he looked over and Jesus slept. Or fast forward, perhaps it was this moment here in Acts 12 that led Peter to write some 20 years later to a small group of beleaguered churches in 1 Peter 5-7, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Peter, when he wrote that to those churches, he knew. He knew what that was like. Look no further than Acts 12. Listen, do you need to reacquaint yourself this morning with what we call gospel rest? Do you need to reacquaint yourself this morning with the fact that Whatever happens in this, without minimizing anybody's trials or sufferings or struggles, they're real. But my struggle uh, that I have shared with you earlier, it's real. But nobody wanted to chop my head off. I thought about the, the words of, uh, 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 of the writer of Hebrews in, in Hebrews 12, When he said, consider Christ. Consider his lot that led him to shed his very blood. And remember, you have not yet shed blood. The writer of Hebrews wasn't, wasn't minimizing the saints' struggles and lack of faith he was helping them to say, look to Jesus who carried that burden and know that he is able because the burden that he carried was infinitely greater than the one that you carry now. He was reminding them and us. And in a way, in its own way, Acts 12 reminds us, whatever your suffering is today, whatever your struggle is today, however unjustly you believe you have been treated or are being treated today, Jesus fared far worse for you so that in your moment you could rest in him. You know what I love before we move on here? I, Peter's situation is Spiritually speaking, we were all in Peter's shoes, weren't we? There's a wonderful picture of the gospel here. Peter is desperate, he is hopeless, he has no way out. Just go back to all the details and the lockdown he is on. That was true for us. Once we were imprisoned and in chains by our sin, weren't we? With no hope of escape. Bound for an eternity of holy wrath. Nobody could fix our problem, not even ourselves. There was no way out, but God sent his spirit to break into our hearts. God sent Jesus Christ to stand in our place, to take the cuffs. He sent Jesus to to do what only Jesus could do, become like us yet without sin, and take our place. Take our punishment. Take the sword. Not from a stranger soldier, but from his eternal father. There's a wonderful picture of the gospel here. And we see it in Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be... You can just see Acts 12 and Peter's situation as he he writes about our salvation. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Peter is us. Spiritually speaking, this was us and this might be you right now. You don't you might not even know but you are imprisoned. You are in chains. You might feel like life is going your way, but spiritually speaking, which means eternally speaking, you are Peter. No hope. Bound. Your fate is sealed. Your sin has accused you, and you stand guilty before a holy God who who will bring everybody to judgment one day. Oh, just as an angel of light shone to Peter and rescued him, so the Christ of the cross comes into your darkness and says, believe in me. I have taken the punishment for your sins. I have bore the burdens of my father's wrath. Believe in me and be set free. That's you this morning. I appeal. I appeal to you. Now, listen as the church prayed and Peter slept, God worked. In power, Just as the Christians prayed, maybe not the details, but they prayed, Lord, will you do something? Look at verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And so when they had passed the the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. And behold, it opened for them on its own accord. And they went out along one street, that's just main street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he realized this was the Lord. This was no dream. The Lord has saved me. Think about this for a moment. Peter's heavily guarded, an angel of the Lord appears suddenly. Chains fall off automatically. Amazingly, amazingly, they they moved through the prison unnoticed by guards. They get to the iron gate. Just one more hurdle. And they open on their own. I love Luke's detail. (laughs) Miracle after miracle after miracle. And we could do a whole sermon on the nature of miracles and what we should expect today. Here's the connection I want us to make this morning. That same power... As we read the details of Peter's escape, we go, wow, it's amazing. That same power that miraculously rescued Peter from prison is the same power that gave strength to Peter for rest and the church to pray despite Herod's might and means and this power of God that brought strength to his people in their time of desperation and weakness for the sake of the gospel mission is the same today as it was yesterday. Why? Because its source is an unchanging God. That means this Acts 12 power is the same power at work in you. Because it's the same God sovereignly keeping you. But don't get me wrong. Don't expect the door when you leave the church to just open automatically. We don't have those kind of doors. We can't afford those kind of doors. But do you see that? The details aren't about the amazingness of the events. They're about the God who is amazing. It's so easy for us to lose sight of the magnitude and greatness of the God that we belong to. In times of trial, in times of suffering and uncertainty, we are prone to minimize God's greatness and power by magnifying the trial. And the result is instead of running to this all powerful God, we run from this all powerful God. And prayer gives way to panic, and rest in Christ gives way to anxiety. And before we know it, we realize we have become unacquainted. with the God who has saved us. But listen, that's folly, isn't it? That's idolatry. That's sin. God desires for us, and listen, he gives us the grace for this. He desires us to trust him in our trials. What does that mean? Eckard Schnabel says, trust in God implies the confidence that God will give strength to endure suffering courage to endure persecution and boldness to be a witness of God's power and grace right to the end. Believers express their faith. They formulate their hopes and wishes in prayers. They acknowledge God's sovereignty to do as he he sees fit, and they leave their fate in his hands. That's what this church did as they cried out to the Lord. That's what Peter did as he laid his head on the concrete knowing where all this is going. He said, "Lord, I trust you. I know who I am. I know who you are. And whatever happens to me is not out of your sovereign control." Come what Listen, here's the deal though. We don't do that perfectly. Scripture's good. That, that's what God calls us to. And he gives us, he gives us uh, examples in his word so that, so that, not so we can say, oh, I need to be like Peter, but so that we can say, oh, I serve the same God as Peter served, so I can be like Peter. But we don't be a, do that perfectly, do we? No one has a perfect faith. In fact, not even these Christians in Acts 12. Did you notice how, what ends up happening in verse 12? When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother John. So Peter goes, he goes to the home, he knocks on the door, and this girl named Rhoda, verse 13, she comes to answer the door, Right? She recognizes Peter's voice, verse 14, but she's freaking out, so she doesn't even open the door. Oh, it's Peter. Could you imagine? Because, hey, yeah, come, where are you going? Open this door. No doubt Peter's looking behind his shoulder, right? No, you don't understand. They're coming for me now. <laughs> she runs and notice, she runs to the others and says, hey, guys. She breaks into the prayer meeting, you know. I'd be like, Rhoda, we're praying. No, no, you don't understand. Peter, he's out, he's here. Look at their response. Verse 15. You are out of your mind. In the original, that whole phrase is one word, man. You're crazy. You're insane. Now, would you be quiet so we can keep praying that God would rescue Peter? (laughs) It sounds ridiculous, but don't we do that? We pray and we get on our knees. Oftentimes, we think the answer needs to look a certain way, and that's why we miss it. Here's what I want you to see here. There there, there are numerous ways that we can't relate to the situation in Acts 12. But in our fallenness, there's one way that we relate all too well. Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief. Do you remember what the desperate father said to Jesus as he asked him to heal his demon-possessed son? Lord, I believe, I believe who you are. Now help me to believe that you could do this. The believers in Acts 12 weren't super Christians. They believed, and they failed to believe at the same time. Can we relate? Now, here's what I want us to see. Yet the Lord, imperfect faith. Yet the Lord heard their prayer. And in his timing, look at verse 6 again, in his timing. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, translation, at the last moment. (laughs) The Lord heard their prayers, and in his timing, and in his way. He didn't spare James. Can't explain that. But he did spare Peter. He answered them. Let that bring you comfort today. We are jars of clay. We are too often fickle in our faith. Lord, help us. We are prone to unbelief, but take God is supremely faithful even when your faith is severely lacking. Their prayers weren't perfect. God answered their prayers. or Their faith wasn't perfect. God answered their prayers, and they couldn't even see it. Oh, we're praying for Peter. It'll never happen, though. He stood at the door. And they said, no, that's not Peter. And then they made theological excuses. Notice what he said. That's his angel. You don't have to have perfect faith. Nobody has perfect faith. There will never be perfect faith. But God is perfectly faithful. He knows where you're at. He knows what you're afraid of. He knows why you feel powerless. He knows what your weaknesses are. He will not abandon you. He will act in his timing and in his way. And that might not be your timing. And it might not be your way. But because it's God's timing and it's God's way, it will be for your good and his glory. Listen, as we close, look at verse 17 with me. If then God gave the same... lost where I'm at here. Sorry about that. That was Tom's text last week. Verse 17. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent. Love it. Guys, they're out there somewhere. Keep it down. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison, and he said, tell these things to James and his brothers. And then notice what he does. Then he departed and went to another place. Luke says Peter departed. He went to another place. I think Peter knew, I can't stay here. It's too dangerous. I gotta go. Peter in that moment, he wasn't running, but he knew in that moment that what wisdom looked like. He needed to go somewhere else. He needed to leave for his safety and the sake of the mission. He knew what he needed to do. And no doubt, he was being led by the Spirit. So in light of this story this morning, what do you need to do right now? What is wisdom in your circumstance? right now. Peter couldn't just stay in the same place, and God doesn't want us to just stay in the same place. He wants us to trust him. So what is it that you, what is it that God is calling you to do right now? Is it panic less and pray more? Is it take your anxious thoughts captive and rest in Christ's righteousness and forgiveness? In other words, run to the cross and cuff yourself there. Fill your thoughts with the glory of your Savior and all that He did for you and the eternal nature and implications for you of that work. What do you need to do this morning? Do you need to stop compromising your faith to to appease your oppressor out of fear and instead stand firm, speaking the truth with humble courage in faith? Is that you? Is that what's next? Or maybe, for some, it's time to put off doubt and put on praise to God for his unwavering faithfulness to you, even in the darkness. Listen, whatever the Spirit is calling you to, as we sing, turn to the King of glory. This story is here to reacquaint us with the God who is there Right now. And he's not just there, but he is at work right now. And he's not just at work, he is able and sufficient for whatever work he is doing. He is eager and he is able to reacquaint you with himself in gloriously transformative ways. So don't just walk out the double doors. I was, I like to listen to bluegrass every now and then. You might not know that. But I was listening to some bluegrass on the way to church this morning, and a song came on, A Little More Faith in Jesus, to the banjo. Love it. And I thought, yes, Lord, whatever happens this morning, may each one of us, if there's somebody who needs faith in Jesus, period, would you save them? Would you give them that? But for each one of your people gathered, would you let us leave with just a little more faith in Jesus?